Welcome to Game Night with the Saints. We're your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. We're a husband and wife who have a passion for board games, and this podcast is dedicated to sharing that passion. So we're back, episode two, and we're going to go through our board game memory for the past couple weeks, each of us, and then we'll jump into our notable news and crowdfunding corner, and then Today, our featured game is Lost Rooms of Arnak. So, Brad, what was your memory from the past couple weeks? All right. Um, so we got to play Eldritch Horror over the uh, last weekend, which is one of our favorite games. And uh, I was Agatha Crane, who's a parapsychologist. Not that that's relevant to my memory. Um, and she had just become lost in time and space which for people who don't understand or haven't played Eldritch Horror uh, is basically you get removed completely from the game board and you can't be affected by any other game effects and you essentially have to skip your next turn and it's awful. Uh, it's one of the worst things that can happen to you in that game in my opinion. But for the Mythos phase we draw a card named Plague of Misfortune which basically says that the lead investigator loses all their stuff and gets a madness, an injury, and a bane condition. And when we look around the table, who's the lead investigator but Agatha Crane? So we don't have to do anything. You know, we high-fived. It was great. It's probably the first time that I was happy to be lost in time and space in an HP Lovecraft game. <laughs> what about you, Jess? What's your memory for the, for the week? So my memory was about losing to Steelheart in a game of the Reckoners. And for those who aren't familiar, the Reckoners is actually a book series by Brandon Sanderson that was turned into a board game. And Steelheart is essentially like an evil version of Superman. So Brad and I have lost to Steelheart more than we have won at the Reckoners. Um, (laughs) But the reason it's my board game memory is because The Reckoners for me is like that song. Every time we sat down to play it, it just brings back happy memories because Brad and I first stumbled across The Reckoners at my first Gen Con. And I think it was your first Gen Con too. Right. um, In 2018. And I had never been to any convention, not even you know, outside of board games. And Brad takes me to Gen Con for my first ever convention. And um, we got to play the Reckoners. And it just, every time we play it, it takes me back to Gen Con 2018. And it introduced me to Brandon Sanderson, who I had known as an author before we played the Reckoners. So playing it, losing at it, still a good time and happy memories for me. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and jump into our uh, notable news and crowdfunding corner and go first this week okay so no surprise to maybe anyone who's listened to episode one but i picked another uh kickstarter this time that has to do with food (laughs) (laughs) um so i picked uh it's called flamecraft it's on kickstarter and it's um from cardboard alchemy this is their third kickstarter and when i was browsing through kickstarters trying to pick for the crowdfunding corner this week um 
I was completely hooked by the tagline of artisan dragons make coffee and cakes. And the only thing I think that maybe would have caught my attention more if it was tea and cakes, because I'm a tea person and not a coffee person. So a little bit about the game. It's for two to five people. Uh, Estimated playtime is about 60 minutes and recommended age is 14 plus. And like I said, the theme is artisan dragons. And in this world, the shopkeepers want the dragons to craft them items. So they can craft food or helpful items like potions. And I'll be honest, just looking at it, I'm not 100% sure if it was worker placement, worker movement. Um, But it really didn't matter to me because when I saw those (laughs) dragon minis, I said to Brad, this crowdfunding corner might be a bad idea for our podcast because (laughs) now I really want this game with these adorable dragon minis. And um, like I said, what I love about it is the theme is adorable. Uh, You have little dragons going around town cooking and helping out the the shopkeepers. And I thought to myself, if this was an anime, I would definitely watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting campaign. I really like how they have like puzzles that you can go on their website and try to solve to get both chances to win the game but also content for the game if you decide to pledge for it i thought that was a really interesting take i hadn't really seen that before uh, on any of the major crowdfunding platforms yeah and we mentioned our our two-year-old toddler jana last podcast and they have an add-on um it's called a bread dragon plushie and i think perhaps they've hit a stretch goal and there's now an additional plushie that's unlocked but Um, we went ahead and we did back this Kickstarter and we put a plushy dragon on there for Gina. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the project, like I said, is fully funded. I think they've hit all their stretch goals. You were looking at it earlier today, Brad, you said they hit a million. Yeah, they're over a million now. A million on Kickstarter and it still is going to be running through September 2nd, um, early in the morning. I think it's almost, uh, I think 9:52 AM on Thursday. The second is your last time to be able to back it. So what about you, Brad? What did you pick for this week? All right. So I picked lands of Galzier. Galzire, not sure. It's G-A-L-Z-Y-R. Uh, and that's published by Snowdale Design. And this one is on GameFound. Uh, it's kind of an open world adventure game. And it's set in the Dale of Merchants universe. For those familiar with that game, that's a really fun deck builder. Um, where you kind of play as anthropomorphized animals that are trying to run a shop. Uh, so here you're playing as amp anthropomorphized adventurers um and you do like the typical adventure game stuff it looks like moving around the board have encounters perform skill tests um do you do you get lost in time and space though uh that seems less likely in this (laughs) one but i can't say for sure um but it can be cooperative or competitive um, if it's co-op, it looks like it's a set number of rounds. And if it's competitive, they have a uh, system where you gain prestige for doing various deeds and stuff. And whoever has the most at the end of the game is the winner. Um, but the thing that really caught my eye with this one is all the story content is on an app in a digital storybook. 
So you can't like accidentally read ahead or accidentally read like the section next to yours and spoil something for yourself. Um, and I thought that was just a really good idea. And I kind of wish more adventure games did that because even when we ran like, uh, when we played through Culminots, it was really hard not to accidentally read further than you wanted to or read like the adjacent paragraph or whatever because you thought it continued. Yeah, I um, had to take a piece of paper and cover up our uh, Culminots book so I didn't cheat and read ahead because it was really hard for me. I'm a very fast reader. Yeah, I mean, Jess can read the entire page and at a glance pretty much, so it's, it's difficult for her to uh, section it off. Um, so I thought that that was a really good solution to that kind of problem. Um, so that's the lands of Galzir and that's on game found through August 31st. All right. So do we want to jump into our, our game of the week, which is lost runes of Arnak? Yeah, that sounds great. So lost runes of Arnak is designed by Min and Elwin, uh, first time designers. They're a, a husband and wife team. And it's published by Czech Games Edition. And it's for two to four players. And uh, in the Lost Ruins of Arnak, players are kind of taking on the role of expedition leaders, hoping to discover the secrets of a remnants of a newly discovered civilization. To that end, players will purchase useful equipment for their expedition, find and make use of mysterious artifacts, They'll interact with Arnak's esoteric guardians and ultimately document document their research to search to uh, share it with the world. The gameplay is essentially kind of a deck builder worker placement hybrid, which uh, I feel like is the type of board game that's become really popular over the last couple of years. We've seen a lot of deck place uh, deck building worker placement hybrids. I want to say deck placement, which is you know going to be my shorthand for that going forward I guess. So before we jump into the actual review now that Brad's given you the rundown of the game I want to give you a little backstory about this game because it it definitely makes me uh, chuckle uh, a little insight into our family. When Brad and I started dating I found out his family for birthdays and holidays do gift list and that was so foreign to me where they essentially give you a list of all the things they want instead of having to figure it out and at first I was like oh god I hate this this takes all the fun out of like surprising people because they know you're going to get something off a list (laughs) but now that we are just so crazy busy with work and with our toddler Jaina and you know just life as as a young married couple well, I don't know if I can actually call us a young married couple. It's <laughs> <laughs> a thought that counts. <laughs> so um, I've actually really come to be grateful for the list. So for Father's Day, Brad had given a list. And as he mentioned uh, on our first episode, Brad's birthday and Father's Day aren't too far apart. So he gave me one list for both. And I had to share the list with our both sets of our parents for his birthday. And they took so long getting back to me. And I wanted to get them, and I'm probably going to botch this name. Is it Trickeron? Trickerion. Trickerion. See, I'm terrible at pronouncing things. So by the time they got back to me with what they were getting them off the list, it was sold out everywhere. Even our local game store, who usually, when we can't find it anywhere, he, Carl, the owner, manages to have a copy 
did not have one. So I was like, crap, Father's Day is in a couple of days. I've got to get him a game. So I went on to BGG and there had the Lost Runes of Arnak in the top 10. And I had seen the game and it popped up in like recommendations, you know, how your phone and ads track you wherever you go. So I like clicked on it quickly and I glanced at it. It's like, okay, it plays at two players. It's by Check Games. We love Galaxy Trucker. It looks like Indiana Jones. So I clicked off BGG to the Amazon link. And it's like 10 copies left. And I'm like, all right, I know nothing else. I'm going to go for it and hope he likes it. (laughs) (laughs) And well. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, minor spoilers since this is kind of the review, but I think it's a really good game. Um, Let's go ahead and start with the production values. It's really clear that care has been taken with the production of this game throughout its entire um, manufacturing process. I mean, the the pieces are just so nice. The tablets, the arrowhead tokens, the jewels, uh, the card stock's really good. The punch board quality is fantastic. Um, The board is double-sided and fully um, illustrated on both sides, like there's bleed on, on the cards and everything. It's just really nice. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. When you first open up the box and you start unpacking it, that was what stood out to me too. That was my first note when we said we were going to do this review was just honestly, it's, it's a beautiful game from the production value. Yeah. And I mean, I don't usually care overly much about um, the production values of a game. Um, Not to knock GMT, but some of my favorite games are GMT games and those are just, you know, cardboard chits or whatever. Right. (laughs) Um, but like you can really tell, tell that there's a lot of care put into this game. Uh, as an example, the level one and level two site tiles are different sizes, which isn't something that check games edition had to do. It probably cost them more money to do that than to have them be the same size, but they did it because it makes the game ever so slightly easier to set up. And I appreciate them for that. Wow, and there's and they did some I'll say super cute touches like instead of page numbers in the rule book, it's a little journal with like day number 1 or 2 and then a little note beside it as if you're actually on this expedition. And so I really appreciated that over just being like page number 1 or 2. Yeah, yeah, it's um an excellent segue because that was going to be my next point, the rule book is great just like most check games edition rule books it kind of feels like they've mastered the art of the rule book honestly because a lot of the times that's kind of the most arduous part of a game is learning the rules and they managed to make it pretty fun between you know the stuff that jess was saying where you've got like these research notes and like the the sidebars and stuff and then the game the layout of the rules itself is actually also really great um, they're just, they're just really good at it at this point. I don't really have anything to say about the rules. There's a little joke in our family that while I'm doing like whatever Brad's reading the rules. So my superhero name for him is rolls man. <laughs> but I mean, it's, you know, it's just goes to show how much a good rule book presentation can really help sell the game even before you start playing. Um, my favorite example of this is actually from another Czech Games Edition game, 
uh, dungeon pets. And there's a rule in that game which uh, includes what happens when a pet isn't bought by a player after two rounds. And the way they put it, it's just like you have to read it twice to make sure you understand what they're saying because the pet goes to a farm in the country where they live happily ever after. And also there's an extra meat token at the meat stand in the next round for completely unrelated reasons. (laughs) So um, jumping into the, the game a little bit more itself is Brad and I always share game setup unless there's, you know, circumstances like something's going on with Jaina or something in the house. Um, so when I was helping Brad set up our first game, it really like struck me. I'm like, why are there only two workers for this worker placement (laughs) game and no more to be had? Right. Um, so I was a little concerned about how the game would actually play. And, um, every worker placement I had played until this point, you either, um, you might have started with like two workers, but there was always more to be had and acquired in this you only had your two workers and your magnifying glass and your notebook token so I was like and the notebook and the magnifying glass for the research track which we'll get to in a moment are really limited so I was like what how much meat can there actually be to a worker placement that has two workers sure yeah and I mean I think uh Jess will agree with me here that it's kind of surprising how much they pack into this game I really think Lost Ruins of Arnak does a lot with only a little. Because um, at the end of the day, what you're really talking about, the game is played over five rounds. And in those five rounds, you'll get about, you'll get to use about 25 cards, you know, plus or minus, call it three for draw and discard effects. And you'll place 10 workers over the course of the game. Um, and that doesn't sound like a particularly satisfying experience, but it ends up being pretty satisfying because there's a really nice ramping of the action economy in the game um i guess we should explain how actions work okay yeah so on your turn um like i said there's a series of five rounds and you take turns until everybody passes and on your turn you can take one main action and any number of fast actions uh that you want so it sounds like you'd only end up with you know, your five actions for your five cards, but there's like a little bit of magic here because as you get more resources and more cards and more other opportunities open up on the board and stuff, you go from, you know, taking maybe three or four actions in round one um, to taking around, you know, 20 or more at the end of round five, um, you know, 20 turns before the game is over in round five. Yeah, this... This is the beauty, I think, of the Lost Runes of Arnak from a gameplay standpoint is you have a little, but you can build a massive engine on your turn if you really like, and you really have to look at it. There's a lot of calculation, not just for the turn you're on to maximize it, but making sure that how you're using your resources, what plays you're moving, what order you're playing it all comes together to then set you up for the very next round to do the same thing because if you don't look at the board and you don't look at your resources and you don't do it right brad's right it could be you could only have like well i i did these five things with these five cards or if you have to spend two cards because the way movement works there's is it a boot 
Yeah, that's what I call it. Yeah, there's a boot and a boat and a plane and a car. And so the boot is like the lowest form of movement on the board. And then you have the car and the boat, um, which are kind of equal. And then the plane can go anywhere. Right, it's a movement hierarchy. Right, it's a movement hierarchy. So you need your cards to move, but you need your cards for resources and you need your cards for like additional actions. So there's a lot packed into those five cards in your hand. And um, in addition, you can also, is it called fear? The fear cards. The fear cards. You um, And you can get cards that are called fear cards. And you start out with two of them in your deck. And they do give you a boot for movement, but they also are like a negative because they take points off. So while you have a small deck, you're also trying to get rid of some of it at the same time. So it's a really interesting action economy and dynamic for building your engine. Yeah, and I mean, I'm partial to multi-use cards anyway. I think it's probably my favorite board game mechanic overall. But uh, I feel like Lost Runes of Arnak really does a lot with cards that are not overly complex on their face either. Um, as Jess was saying, you can use the card for movement, moving your workers to specific spaces, but then you can't use it for anything else. And if you want to use it for its ability, then you can't use it for movement. So it, every every single turn is, is an interesting choice like that, and I just think the game nails it. Well, and before, I, I, wanna, I do want to talk more about, like, because there's two types of cards. There's item cards and artifact cards. But before that, I think we should talk about the research track because as we talk about the interaction, a lot of times, like, when you think of, like, traditional worker placement, like maybe, like, uh, Champions of Midgard, games like that, you think you have a space, one worker goes there, maybe there's some, like, you know, Champions of Midgard, it's a round of combat, but with Lost Runes of Arnak, there's this thing called the research track. And that's where when I talked about you had a, a little magnifying glass and a notebook token. And what it is, is you're like trying to research your way up to the top of the temple. And for, for me, I found, and I played around with like when we were doing our games of Lost Runes of Arnak, because I felt, wow, this research track is OP. Like if you just get to the top of it, you're always going to win. I tested that theory multiple times. That is not, in fact, the case. But how it works and it's very interesting dynamic your magnifying glass has to go up the track first and there are connect the dots isn't the right word but there's like when you go up the track the the paths connect in certain ways so you can't you can't go if you pick one way you may not be go over to the other side so um you move your magnifying glass you have to be sure that maybe for the next couple moves on the track that that's the way you want to go and those are the resources you want to spend. And then your notebook can choose a different track, but it can never move past your magnifying glass. And your notebook is what gives you research assistance, which are an additional um, resource. Is that? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're basically more actions for your action economy engine, right? Um, they have like special little powers like, you know, this one will give you a compass and a gold or this one will uh let you travel as if you had a playing card without spending a card or something like that so the research track 
what I found in going up it is it consumes a lot of resources. So yeah, you have to pay to go up it. So it's not a, and it, that's an interesting point too. I think if I can, uh, can pause you here for a sec in a lot of Euro games, which I think I'm comfortable classifying this as going up the track is, um, often just the outcome of doing other things. Um, thinking of something like terraforming Mars where it's like, Oh, I did this cool thing. And also I got a TR, right. Um, but here it's a conscious choice to go up that track. Um, you really got to invest in it if that's the way you want to go. Correct. And that I feel like the higher up you go, obviously the more resources it costs you. And that's in later game too. So you're like, I, like we were saying earlier, it's really a balance of resources and action economy and maximizing each turn to try and make sure you have, you know, is it the most points? Is that? Yeah. I mean, you, you win by having the most, the most points at the end. I never know what games call it. Instead of every game calling it points, like they always have different <laughs> names. That's why I look at you a little hesitant. I'm like, is it points in this one? I don't it's remember. The, the convenient victory point derivative. <laughs> that this game decides to use. But yeah, it is interesting. And I think a lot of people will look at the research track and they'll go, oh, I'm going to do this because, you know, I'm going to get points for that. I'm going to get points for my magnifying glass being here. And then when I get to the top of the temple, I can start buying those uh, temple tablet tiles, which are also worth points. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's all true. But everything in this game gets you points. And as an example, like defeating a guardian gets you five points and usually costs way less than going up the later stages of the research track. Do you want to explain a little bit about what the guardian is and how that mechanic works? Like a dig site and a guardian work? Yeah, sure. So one of the actions that you can take on your turn is um, discovering a new site. So Lost Ruins of Arnak is kind of unique in that when the game starts, there's only a handful of work work replacement spots available and the rest of them have to be discovered um you have to spend compasses and a uh, travel icon and send a worker to a place to discover a new site and when that happens um and uh the level one sites are three compasses and the level two sites are six compasses And when you do that, you get to draw one of the site tiles and reveal it. You get the resources for that site tile, and then you also have to put a guardian on it. And the guardians have a cost to defeat um, them, usually more resources. Um, And when they're defeated, they're worth five points. But if your worker is still on that spot and they're undefeated at the end of the turn, then you get a fear card in your deck. So it's a bit of a risk-reward because you don't know... um, when you reveal the guardian, if you're going to have the resources to defeat it that turn. Yeah, we've had some fun interactions with the guardians. We had one game where each guardian, I feel that Brad and I um, met on our dig sites, we did not have the resources with. And so you, you get a fear card if you don't defeat it. And then the next game we played, literally the resources that we got for the dig site were the resources of the random guardians yeah. drawn. Yeah. So yeah, it was like, yay, I got these resources. Oh, goodbye resources, but hello, you know, five point guardian in my hand. Yeah. And the guardians also give you a one-time ability when you defeat them. So they're, they're definitely worth it. But I think that could potentially rub some people the wrong way about Lost Ruins of Arnak. Um, because it is very lucrative to discover a new dig site. Um, you go, you get 
the guardian, you also get an idol, which is worth three points or two idols for a level two site, uh, which is six points. And then, you know, you have your first crack at the guardian. So it's another five points. So discovering a level two site is potentially 11 points on that turn, but you have no idea what you're going to get from that work placement spot. And if you were planning on like needing a jewel or something and it's like, well, have two arrowheads, a compass and a gold instead. Right. It's like, well, you got to make the best of that. And I think some people, especially if they're forward planning, will not like that reactive kind of gameplay. That is true. Um, the one thing, though, that I, ha- I think slightly helps mitigate that is when you get the idol Brad mentioned, you can see on the idol each. I- so for the level one dig sites, you can see the idol gives you something. And the level two dig sites, one of the two idols gives you something. But on your player board, you have several spaces where you can use the idol for a resource. So to Brad's point, if you land on a site and you didn't get your gem, I call it a ruby. <laughs> I think they're actually jewels. Gems. I don't know why I said gems. <laughs> you you can use your idol that you got to actually um, you know, get some of the resources that you were looking for. Sometimes you need to pay gold or trade another resource if you have it with your idol, but there's a little flexibility if you didn't quite get what you want to mitigate it. You can't mitigate it entirely, but you can mitigate it to some degree. Yeah. And it's kind of the whole game is kind of an efficiency puzzle where you have to use what the game gives you and just make the best of it as opposed to, you know, high level strategic planning, you know, I'm going to two turns from now, I'm going to have this great turn and do this thing. You're never going to do that in Lost Ruins Aranac. It's just not going to happen because what you get is so random. You know, oh, go ahead. No, finish your thought. Cause then I want to jump back to the cards. Okay. You know what it reminds me of? Um, our daughter is, uh, picking up words all the time because she's two and you know that's a vocabulary explosion time and one of the words that she picks up uh and she says all the time right now is treasure but she doesn't really understand the context of the word so she'll pick up like a random object it'll be like a wooden spoon or something she'll be like treasure treasure and just run around the house and be super stoked that she found some treasure and that's basically what lost runes arnick arnak asks you to do it's like here's some stuff Go do with it what you can, right? Just so you know, I'm probably going to yell treasure at least softly because she's usually sleeping when we play now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I want to jump back and talk about the cards a little bit because they're a a big part of like the engine you build for resources and action economy. So like I said earlier, there's two type of cards. There is the item cards and the artifact cards and they each interact a little bit differently. The item cards are purchased with gold or if you get some special um, other card for it. And then the artifact cards are typically purchased with compasses. So, and as the game goes on and the, the round marker moves, you get more artifacts and less item cards to pick from. So it's one of those things, again, you have to, like, as you play the game, and these are the layers that I love in board games that just make them so enjoyable and give them so much replayability, is you have to plan for that. So you can't be like, oh, I'll save my gold and buy next round because there's less, you know, less cards perhaps going to come up next round that you're going to see. 
Yeah, less items. And I really like that thematically too, because in my mind, what it represents is as you get further into the lost ruins of Arnak and you're exploring this ancient civilization and stuff, the mundane items become harder to find and you find more and more artifacts lying around. And so I thought thematically that was a really good connection that they basically took a game mechanic that's absolutely necessary right like round progression and they added this thematic tie-in where you get less items over time and more artifacts over time because your expedition is getting further into the island right so um when we talk about like generating an engine it was one of the first games we played i don't remember if it was our first or second game but it was very early on when we first started playing this game and there's a card called the whip. I call it the Indiana Jones card. <laughs> so, um, and the whip allows you to exile it to buy an artifact with a discount of four compasses. And four compasses is pretty high. Yeah, that's most artifacts cost that or less. Right. And so I got, I purchased the whip and I used it to acquire an artifact card called the Ornate Hammer. And so when you get an artifact card, it automatically goes into play and you get to do it that round at no cost. Um, so, which is different. The item cards, actually, when you buy them, they go on the bottom of your deck. Um, so I got the Ornate Hammer. And what the Ornate Hammer lets you do is you get to immediately acquire a card in exile. So I built this little engine where I would play the Ornate, I would get the whip, back and I would pick up a artifact card be able to put it into play that round and then when the ornate hammer came up because I got it I think I got the whip and the ornate hammer round one yep so I over those five rounds I got to put it thanks to lucky shuffle into play quite a bit and I racked up a lot of points on the cards yeah each of those artifacts is worth like two points so I got crushed that game (laughs) but that's just an example of how like the cards can can play into the engine because as I was getting artifact cards, some of them gave me additional resources. Some of them, you know, helped me um, draw additional cards, which is very important because like Brad said, the round goes until you pass. So if you can get more cards into your hand, more resources into your hand, um, that might allow you to go, you know, up the research track one more time or might allow you to like, um, you know, get more gold to buy more cards or compasses to buy more artifact cards. Yeah. I mean, you can really, and like I said, it's, it's so, uh, brief, uh, as a game, it plays in like 40 minutes for, for a two player game. Um, but you can really build something there and it's just really impressive in that way. I do want to say that it's possible that with enough plays, there is, the potential for an optimal first round or the first couple of turns or something like that. Um, and I think that's due to the criticality of getting the assistance early. So you can kind of prime your engine because they really help buff your engine a lot and they feel pretty necessary. So I think most people will spend the first couple of turns moving first their magnifying glass and then their notebook up the research track. Right. And you get the assistance, um, 
there's I, I don't remember how many are in the box but there are three stacks of them they're yeah. randomized so sometimes you want to make sure if you see one like okay i feel this one will be strong you want to try and get your resources to be the first one to move your magnifying glass and then move your notebook to make sure you get first pick of the research assistant yeah and you know in some games if your first turn was completely scripted that would probably be you know the end of the game you know nobody would want to play that game but here for me at least it doesn't really matter that much because of the way that your action economy scales throughout the game you're never going to be able to script out to the fifth round and in the fifth round you're doing 25 actions or something like that so even if your first round is like okay i move my magnifying glass and then i move my notebook and i get my assistant or whatever it's not that big a deal to me but i think some people will look at that and be like Am I going to do this the same way every time? And the short answer is no, because there's a whole other side of the board, which we'll talk about in a second. But even if, you know, this is true, because I I haven't played it out enough to know for sure that there's an optimal first few turns, even if it's true, it's going to take you several plays to get there, right? And then it'll take you several more plays to get there on the Snake Temple side, and maybe you end up playing the game like 16 times before you have it down completely right and i think that's fine right (laughs) well and i think that's the beauty of the cards too because i feel like depending on what the cards are that are dealt for the artifact and the item cards that could change that optimal term because first term because there are some cards that really can like impact your engine so if the choice is the research assistant or my favorite item card the carrier pigeon which gives you two tablets as a fast action like (laughs) i mean that that's that's a pretty important card if it comes up if you have the gold or you can make the gold you might want to make the gold and get the carrier pigeon versus the first choice of research assistant so i feel i think you're right that there will be loosely i feel an optimal first turn but I do think that some of the randomness that occurs with the dealing of the cards can impact that. Yeah, and in addition, as we were just talking about, the main board is double-sided. On one side is the bird temple, and on the second side is the snake temple. And they have completely different research tracks with completely different costs to go up. And in the Snake Temple, the way that the assistants are procured is also completely different. As opposed to having that three stack you get to pick from. Um, They're just like there and there. I I think the the lore, uh, the thematic explanation is that they're trapped in the temple. And that's why you get significantly less choices. So it's possible that that optimal turn doesn't exist on the snake temple side or looks significantly different. So you get even more mileage out of this game before, you know, you're done with it or whatever. Wow. And I don't know, like I feel the last runes of Arnak is one I don't know that we'll ever be done with. It's definitely earned its place on our shelf, but I want to talk about the snake temple and the research track, because like I said, when we were playing these games, When we first played the first two games, I think the first game or second game, I didn't really pay attention to the research track and Brad just crushed me. Like it was such a difference in the score. It was similar to the game he talked about with my little card engine builder I had going. And so then I was like, 
all right, the research track is OP. I'm going to charge it every game for like however many games to prove this. And, um, and I didn't, we actually found out that it, if you did that and you ignored the dig sites, like you were, you, it just, it got very difficult with resources and, and such. So that isn't the case, but on the snake temple, the first time I rushed the research track, I was like, this is not the optimal way to do this <laughs> because, yeah, the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, as I say, because we found out like just how I feel one, the way you said the research assistants work, but two, like the amount of resources that I feel going to the snake temple felt at least that game to me much heavier than on the bird temple side. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the snake temple requires you to give up an idol at one point to go up the track, which is basically lose three points to go up one space on the research track, right? So it's a lot more different and it gives me a lot of hope for the recently announced Expedition Leaders expansion because one of the big things in that expansion, in addition to, you know, asymmetrical powers and all that stuff is there's going to be even more research tracks, right? And with that being such a core part of the game, you know, changing that up just sounds awesome. So do we want to touch a little bit on the game theme? You and I have talked about it a lot. Yeah, so obviously it's archaeology themed and that comes with all sorts of colonialist baggage, right? Because at the end of the day, all archaeology is really essentially theft from a native people for entertainment or educational purposes of another culture, right? Um, And I love museums because I love to learn about those cultures and stuff, but it's tough to separate out the fact that well first you had to steal these things right and you ruined the indiana jones movies for me by the way when you first brought this up about the lost ruins of arnak (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i mean i think one of the ways maybe that the designers uh skirt the issue is it really feels like this is a mythical fake island that exists outside of the real real world and we see that now with even how like amazon games is handling their new mmo um new world right is we'll make this acceptable by putting it outside the bounds of reality or like you know you see some games do it with like space settings right yeah i mean like if twilight imperium happened in the real world it would be terrible right if it was like france crushes europe so that they can get access to italy or something uh you know that would be awful but because it's in space it's fine when you like raise another civilization to get access to mechatol rex all right so bouncing back from the theme i want to touch on something that they did that was i felt very beneficial to me because like we said you only had two workers and you would think wow your two workers are the first thing you think of there have been multiple times in our plays of lost ruins of arnak that I forgot about my workers. (laughs) Brad's laughing. It's a real thing. And I'd look down and be like, oh my God, I still have a worker and I don't have a card. And I think one time I had a guardian that saved me with the fast action. Like, well, it's ability was, I think it was like a plane, but they have the ability that, um, you can also buy, you can charter a flight, um, with gold. So, 
I think they put that in there because they knew they were making a game that was so fun to play and you're so busy thinking, I need this compass and this piece of gold and I need this tablet and this arrowhead that you forget, hey, my two guys are hanging out here. You want to go send me somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's a lot you can do in that game. It's pretty impressive. Well, and the chart of the flight felt real life to me because it's like, oh, you don't have a way of getting there, but you have some gold. Just buy a plane. <laughs> right, right. Any final thoughts or additional yeah. ads you have? Yeah, so this game right now is currently ranked number 53 overall on the uh, Board Game Geek uh, rankings, or the leaderboard, if you will. What do you think about that? So is it 50, 53 overall for all games of all time? Yeah. Yep. So, and I'm sorry, this may not be what I'm about to say very popular with some of our listeners. I don't usually buy into top hotness list for board games. And here's the reason why is there are thousands and thousands, and that's not even an exaggeration of board games that come out every year. I am grateful for the hotness list for giving me this game for you for Father's Day. <laughs> out of our collection, that's all I can speak of. I can't talk about all time. I can only talk about what I've played. Um, I think it would probably be in my top 10 of our collection. So for me, that's like the highest, you know, rating I could say I could sure. give it. You know, like if it was like you have to pick only 10 of our amazing games and this is all you can have. I think Gloss Runes of Arnak has earned its spot because it checks the box of setup isn't that bad, cleanup isn't that bad. We can play it over Jaina's nap or sometimes at night we only have like an hour to play. I mean, and it's fun. I feel like every game we just enjoy it and we walk away from the table talking about this or that with it. So for me, Yes. Now, you're maybe a much more versed in the world of board games. So what do you think? Does it deserve uh, its spot? I don't know if I'd say that. But uh, yeah, I mean, when I first heard that, I thought that was absolutely insane. I was like, there's no way a new game from like first time designers can like in one year, because it came out in 2020, rise all the way up to top 50 best board games of all time right and then we played it and then we played it some more and i think now i'm kind of coming out the other side i'm like you know what maybe it is maybe it is one of the best board games ever made i think there's something really to be said for a game with great production values really solid gameplay good at multiple player counts that respects your time and you can buy at a reasonable price. I think that's something that's really resonating with people right now between, you know, various in and out of lockdown situations where you don't know how many people you're going to have to play with or how much time you're going to have because, you know, you've got all your kids in the house or whatever. Um, and just making this game more approachable and more accessible has really done it some good. And I really think people are responding to that. Um, I'll be really interested to see where it is in like two years, but it's got an expansion coming out. So it'll probably go higher rather than lower. Right. Uh, so follow up question then. This is also the number four best family game 
on Board Game Geek right now. What do you think about that, Jess? Uh, so I guess it depends how you define family. And I don't know that I feel this, like if your family is, you know, you have teenagers, you raise them up with board gaming, they're familiar with board gaming. So you have, you know, a couple of teenagers or one teenager and you, yeah, for your family, it may be. But when I think, when we like encompass, right? Cause that is, this is why I hate list. When you encompass things under the umbrella of family, our family is you and I and a two-year-old. So the best family game for us is First Orchard by Hama. Like that's our best <laughs> family game. Um, for, you know, I, I'll use our next door neighbors that we sometimes get together to play with. They have a six-year-old, soon to be, I think, 11-year-old and a 13-year-old. So for them, this wouldn't be the best family game because I don't think that their youngest, even though she's incredibly intelligent for a six-year-old, would be able to play this game. So, I mean, I feel you have to define family. And like I said, if you define family as a slightly older, you know, skewing family, then absolutely. But if you're talking about family where you have kids under, let's say, the age of maybe 10 or 8, probably this isn't the family game for you. Yeah, I think it's really tough to get to the definitional requirements of family game um, because that's, as you just pointed out, skews a huge demographic of various families of all different age ranges. And when I think of family game, I think of something that hits those age ranges, right? I think of Sushi Go, who, which we have successfully played with people who are six and people who are 60, right? Um, I think of, you know, maybe Sequence uh, as a game that you could play with a, a really broad audience. I think that's probably where we don't connect with board game. I think our definition of a family game is probably different. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it for for the podcast. Lost Ruins of Arnak. Great game. You've been listening to Game Night with the Saints with us, your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. If you like what you just heard, please consider leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps. You can also follow us on Instagram at St. Gamers or Twitter at St. underscore Gamers to let us know what you think and be notified when the next episode goes live. We also have a Ko-Fi account linked at the bottom of the show notes if you feel like tossing us a couple of bucks to help offset the costs of running the podcast and website. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, remember, it's just a game.